the Mini Break, your day podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 28th. Yes, we have a couple of ATP challengers on the calendar this week. We also have a couple of WTA 125K events for us to enjoy. That said, the focus of today's podcast is going to be on one of my favorite events we see each and every season on the pro tennis calendar. It's a Officially time for the sixth edition of the next-gen ATP Finals to begin. We'll see eight of the top 21 and under ATP prospects all descend upon one location to compete for one final title here this season. What I want to do on this show for all of you listeners is provide the context, the proper context, I should say, for this year's event. I want to break down, of course, each of the eight men competing in this year's field. How did they get to this year's next-gen finals? And then I want to provide some broader context. I want to discuss how this year's field compares to the five prior fields we've seen compete at next-gen finals in the past. Of course, I think that piece of context is critical, as in my opinion, the next-gen ATP finals provide us the best snapshot into the state of the union, dare I say, of the young prospects we see emerging on the ATP tour each and every season. And look, it's worth noting right off the top, there are absences from this year's field. There are players like Carlos Alcaraz, like Holger Runa, who are each still 21 or younger and could absolutely be competing should they choose to do so at this year's field. Now, again, I think we can all understand why a player like an Alcaraz, why a player like Aruna would elect not to compete at this year's next-gen finals, but there are a couple of other absences as well worth discussing. And again, I think it's worth speaking about those absences because had those players been included in this year's field boy, would this be a star-studded event this week. And again, I wanted to go back in time and see, A, how many absences do we typically experience at a next-gen finals? Why might those absences occur? And then B, how do the current crop of 21 and under ATP players compare to their peers of recent past? How have players who have had success at the next-gen ATP finals gone on to compete in the subsequent seasons? It's just, again, a fun snapshot of each and every season's uh, of the progress made, excuse me, in each and every season of these young 21 and under prospects. And I think it's a key piece of context for all of us tennis fans to have as we enjoy this week's action. So again, what I want to do on today's podcast for all of you listeners is not focus on the challengers, not focus on the WTA 125K events. We'll do that later in the week. No, here on today's show, we're talking strictly next gen finals. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And I am well aware things are slowing down in the tennis world. I promise things are just beginning to heat up for us here at Crack Rackets. There's no time period I enjoy more than the tennis offseason. It allows me to get creative. It allows us to get funky here on our Crack Rackets prospects. We can talk about all those fun things, hand out awards for the 2023 season. We can play massive games, stock up, stock down. Who were the biggest winners and losers of the 2023 season? What were the biggest trends we saw emerge throughout the course of the year. And then, of course, 
We need to look forward towards 2024. Who are the players who are on the hot seat heading into next year? Who are the players we expect to break out heading into next year? A lot of fun conversations, a lot of fun guests on the horizon. As such, you want to make sure you're liking, you're rating, you're subscribing, you're reviewing all of our shows, mostly subscribing so that you don't miss out on any of our content, whether it's here on the Mini Break Podcast or, of course, on our other shows on the Great Shot Podcast. We'll get funky. We'll have our top 10 college tennis previews coming up in the near future. We'll also, of course, just have a complement of different shows coming up over on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. I'm really looking forward to some of the interviews we have on the horizon with various players, coaches. So even though I didn't get the word horizon out perfectly there, just be on the lookout for those shows in the near future. Make sure you're subscribing to all of our Crack Rackets content, subscribing to our Crack Rackets YouTube channel so that you don't miss out on any of the action. Of course, a shout out before we begin, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point as well for their support of this show. Remember, for all the best equipment at the best prices, you can go find it all at one location, tennis-point.com. It's perfect for holidays. Holiday shopping for all of your tennis friends. Again, any gift you're looking for, any brand, any item, I promise our friends at Tennis Point, they carry it. Tennis-point.com. Make sure you use our promo code CR15 at checkout to ensure they know we sent you there. That said, again, we'll get to the challengers. We'll get to the WTA 125K events later on in the week. For now, I want to focus on the next-gen ATP finals. And I think the place for us to start is, again, by providing that that context. How does this year's field compare to fields of years past? How have winners of this event gone on to fare in their immediate future? Well, it started off with a bang, right? For a while there, it felt like if you won the next-gen finals, we could almost guarantee you a spot in the later rounds in week number two of the subsequent Australian Open. And, you know, most notably was right off the bat. Hee-Un Chung wins that 2017 next-gen ATP finals. By the way, that 2017 field, an absolutely loaded field. Now, the average ranking of that group at the time, 50.14, but just listen to these names. Hyun Chung, ultimately your winner, who again goes immediately from that next-gen finals title to reaching the Australian Open semifinals the next season. Hyun Chung, probably the uh, secondly star-studded member of that field. Listen to who else competed in that inaugural event. You had Andre Rublev, Karen Hachinov, Denis Shapovalov, Borna Chorich, a healthy Jared Donaldson. Boy, were the... We miss you, Jared. We hope you're feeling well. We hope you're enjoying whatever you have progressed to on in life. But man, was Donaldson a special prospect, a special American prospect in particular in a time when there was a dearth of American men's prospects. Obviously, that is no longer the case. But before there was a Tiafo, before there was a Paul, before there was a Fritz breakthrough, there was a Jared Donaldson breakthrough. Obviously, Donaldson, a part of that initial field. You also had Hyun Chung. You had Italian wild card and former junior Wimbledon champion, a guy from Migrate. John Luigi Quincy, who, no, never made a top 100 debut. But again, if you are my age and a nerd like I was, you know John Luigi Quincy was one of the quintessential prospects of my era. So again, Quincy was your seventh name. And by the way, guess who was your eighth name? 
in that 2017 field. Guess who was the lowest ranked player to qualify on his own merits in that 2017 field? A lowly Russian by the name of Daniil Medvedev. How has he done in the subsequent years since competing in that 2017 next-gen ATP finals? I think he's done pretty well. Again, Rublev, Hachinov, Medvedev, Shapo, Chorich, Donaldson, Chung, Quincy. That's a star-studded field, a field that, by the way, did not include Sasha Zverev, who absolutely could have played the event by age. He would have been the number one qualifier for the event as well. But Zverev, who was number four in the world at the time, he was a little bit busy playing the ATP Tour Finals. And you can always understand why a player who qualifies for that Tour Finals, they probably think, you know what? I don't need to play the next-gen finals. I'm I'm ready to compete against the big boys in a round-robin event. Now, you could always play both. I suppose that would be an option for a bold player. But Zverev did not play. take that option. It's hilarious looking back twice. Sasha Zverev could have played this event twice. He skipped it because he was competing in the ATP Tour Finals. Speaks to how good he was extraordinarily early uh, in his career and how good he has been from start to finish of it. Again, that 2017 field featured a Hyun Chung who wins the event, who subsequently goes on to the next year's Australian Open semifinals. By the way, that exact same scenario, it happened in 2018. And that 2018 field, for me, that's the best field. That's the best group of prospects. That was a moment, by the way, early on in our Cracked Rackets podcast days where you just kind of felt this next-gen crew had a little bit of something, a little bit more than their peers. The lost generation of Dimitrov, Rayanich, you know, Nishikori. I just, it felt like you'd watch these guys compete and you could tell, oh, you know, these guys got the juice. Of course, in 2018, your winner was Stefano Tsitsipas, who, by the way, immediately goes on and plays this event November 2018. What does he do in January of 2019? He makes his first semifinal at the Australian Open. Tsitsipas, ultimately the winner of that 2018 field. But outside of Italian uh, wildcard Liam Carjuana, there was not a single weak spot in that 2018 field. Tsitsipas, your eventual champion. You've got the emergence of the Americans, Tiafo, Fritz. And at that point, you could feel like, all right, maybe there's a little bit of American mojo flowing. You've got Andre Rublev competing at the event for a second straight season. Alex Diemenauer makes his debut at this event. Uh, by the way, again, Liam Karwana, another name. Zverev could have played the event. He didn't because he was off playing the ATP Tour Finals. Denis Shapovalov could have played the event once again. He didn't due to injury. Who were the final two men in 2018? Hubi Hercots was your lowest ranked player to get in on his own merits. How has Hubi Hercots subsequently done in his career? Oh, yeah, he's going to finish his season a top 10 player. He just won his second 1,000 level title this past season. And then. Hami Munar, who maybe hasn't turned into a top 50 player, but certainly a top 100 guy, certainly in my opinion, one of the 50 best players we have on clay courts. Again, he's made a real real career out of this professional tennis thing, is uh, routinely in the hunt, uh, you know, inside or just around number 100 in the world. That's just, that's a really strong field. And yes, Caruana was the Italian wild card, but let's say Zverev, Ashapovalov had played that event. It just speaks to, again, 2018, it's felt like, all right, this next-gen crew, they've got something special brewing because, of course, Hachinov, Medvedev, they had just aged out, but each of them had begun to progress inside the top 25, if not further up the ATP rankings. That 2018 field, that's number one in my books in terms of fields we've seen compete at the next-gen finals. Because again, Pass right now, top 10 player, 
Fritz, top 10 player. Rublev, top 10 player. Hercots, top 10 player. Diebenauer and Tiafo are like 11 and 14 respectively. And then, again, I'm not going to hold it against Munar Karwana. The average ranking of that group, 53.85, which is the second best average ranking we've had of any next-gen field behind 2017. But again, I'm going to give 2018 the boost there. 2019 is my second favorite field. And the winner of that event, of course, is a young man you may have heard of, an Italian by the name of Yannick Sinner, who was a wild card. Sinner was the Italian wild card into the event. Crazy. Speaks to the strength of this year's field, which, by the way, the 2019 field could have featured Stefano Tsitsipas. Why did he elect not to play in 2019? Not only did he win the event in 2018, but what was he busy doing in 2019? Oh, yeah, I think he was busy winning the ATP Tour Finals. And if he didn't win it that season, he won it the subsequent year again. He was seven in the world uh, by the time of that 2019 Next Gen Finals. And again, that was one year removed from him winning that event. So I think Tsitsipas made the right call. Shapovalov, for what it's worth, could have played the event again. He chose to withdraw from the event. Felix Ogier Aliasim, who somehow never played this event, even though it feels like he's been 19 years old for seven straight seasons and inside the top 25 of the rankings. Felix could have played. Tsitsipas could have played. Shapovalov could have played. None of them did. And yet, this is probably from top to bottom, the strongest eight we have seen in the field. There's no Caruana. There's no Quincy. There's no odd man out in terms of depth in the 2019 field. And yes, Sinner was ultimately the winner. Shout out to the rhyme. But you also had a demon hour. You, you had a Tiafo. You had an Ugo Umber. How has he done? Oh, yeah, he's built himself back up into a top 30 player. You've had a Kasparud. How's Kasparud done? Two-time slam finalist? No, sorry. Three-time slam finalist, former world number two. You also had a Miamir Kesmenovic. He's been a top 50 guy pretty much ever since Mikhail Emer. Obviously, he's suspended at the moment, but... Pretty consistent top 100 guy. Considering Emers, the weakest player of this group, as the final member of the field was Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. What? Seven of the eight men that have participated in this field have become top 30 players or better from that. Honestly, I'm looking at 2019. I made a mistake. 2019's the best field, top to bottom. There's not a single weak guy in it, and that Sinner was the Italian wild card. Again, a little bit of cheating compared to fields prior. I give 2018 that boost because had Zverev, Shapovalov both played, again, you'd look at that 2018 field and you go, humana, humana, humana. But you, where's that from? I forget what cartoon that's from. I think that's from Johnny Bravo. So shout out to those who don't. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, anyways... I'm making a mid-podcast change to the tweet I sent out a little bit earlier. I actually think 2019 was the strongest field because, again, seven of the eight have cracked the top 30, and you also had players like Tsitsipas, FAA, Shapovalov not participating in that 2019 field. So typically, this has been a star-studded event. Again, we'll go a little bit quicker through the final two. Fourth on the list, I have 2021. It was won by Carlos Alcaraz. What did he do in the 2022 season? Oh, yeah. Finish the year world number one. Win his first major at the U.S. Open. I think it's safe to say Carlos Alcaraz got a little bit of a next-gen ATP boost. Now, it's worth noting, Sinner didn't play that 2021 event. FAA could have, but didn't play the 2021 event. Neither did Jensen Brooksby, who was out due to injury, but of course was the hottest thing since sliced bread in 2021. 
Good, not great players in that 2021 field. You had Alcaraz, Runa, Korda as special prospects. Outside of that, Musetti, Nakashima, Juan Manuel Sarundalo, Sebi Baez, Hugo Gaston. Again, a solid field. I wouldn't say it's quite as exceptional as the fields we talked about prior. And then I think last year was probably the weakest field we have had to date. You had Brandon Nakashima ultimately capture the title. He, Lorenzo Musetti, Jack Draper, Yuri Lachetchka have all been top 50 players. Outside of that, you know, Jason Sung, former world junior number two, he's still working his way towards the top 100. We certainly know the talent possessed by Adam Stricker, who reached the semifinals last year and for many probably came to their attention for the first time. We're going to see Stricker, by the way, competing in the event this year following his U.S. Open run, following the ATP Challenger success that he has had. But it was probably a year too soon for Dom Stricker. Like, for instance, I could see Dom Stricker winning this event and then experiencing the subsequent next-gen ATP Finals boost we've seen so many of his peers in the past experience. Stricker's a guy you circle. We'll get back to him in a little bit. But again, Musetti, Draper, Nakashima, Lechechka, Sung, Stricker, a relative unknown at the time by the name of Matteo Arinaldi, who's obviously become a top 50 player, made the second week of the U.S. Open this year, got that critical win for Team Italy yesterday or two days ago over Alexi Paparin uh, to help clinch the Davis Cup title. Him, Francesco Passaro, the other Italian in, in 2022. The average ranking of that field was 72. Of course, it's worth noting you didn't have Alcaraz, Runa, or Sinner, your three top prospects. None of them played last year's field as such that absence was certainly felt at the same time perhaps that spoke to how good these young players how quickly they became elite players on the ATP tour again Alcaraz was one in the world at the time of the next gen finals and he had won it the year prior probably didn't need to go back last season Runa had just won the Paris Masters had just beaten Djokovic was an alternate at the ATP finals and then you know, Sinner had dealt with some injuries throughout the course of that 2022 season. You can understand why the former champion didn't want to go back and play that event. All of that, of course, sets up this 2023 field, which is where I want to move to next. And, you know, again, just to compare the average rankings of the prior fields, 2018, the average ranking, 53.9, 2019, 56.1, 2017, the average ranking, 50.1, uh, 2021, the average ranking, 71.9, last year, the average ranking, 72.4, the average ranking of the 2023 field it's tough. I'm not going to lie. It's our lowest to date. The average ranking of a player participating in this year's field, 88.1. We only have one player returning from last year's field to this year's event. That, again, is Dominic Stricker, who I alluded to earlier. Other than that, it's seven fresh faces for us to become familiar with. It is, though, worth noting here at the top, again, three particular absences. You have the absence of world number two now, Carlos Alcaraz, who of course reached the semis of the ATP finals a couple of weeks ago. Alcaraz, again, won this event back in 2021. There really would be no purpose for him to come and play this other than to collect the prize money. So you can understand why he's sitting things out. By the way, Carlos Alcaraz could play next year's event as well. It would be hilarious if he's like, you know what? I would play next year because why not? I I like playing matches, but 
Again, given the injury, the health issues he's had down the season's home stretch, a lot of wear and tear on that body, you can understand why he's gone. Holger Runa, currently eight in the world, qualified for the ATP Tour Finals this season, you know, was on the precipice of qualifying for those semifinals as well. I don't understand why Runa didn't play this event last season, given the fact that he had never won this event, but I do think I understand why he didn't play it this season. What does he have left to accomplish against this group of peers? Not to disrespect the current 21 or under players, but that's not whom Hogaruna measures himself against. So you can understand his absence. I don't understand the absence of the other two players who could have qualified for this field who are uh, who have elected not to play. I should say I don't understand their absence. You look at number 17, Ben Shelton, who of course is one of our breakout players of this 2023 season. You know, the massive runs at the U.S. Open, Australian Open, was pretty good down the home stretch in Asia as well. Pretty good down the home stretch at the indoor European events. Look, Ben Shelton said it very prominently at the start of this season. Traveling to the Australian Open was the first time he had traveled outside of the country in his lifetime. And he had been and he continued those travels for the duration of the next eleven months. You can understand why after that Paris Masters, he he, he probably looked in the mirror and said, or looked at his coach, his father, and said, Dad. I'm dead. I got no more tennis left in me. It's time for me to hit the the refresh button, go train, go refocus, go head into the 2024 season fresh where, again, right off the bat, he's got Australian Open quarterfinal points to defend. I understand from that perspective why Ben Shelton would elect not to play this event. At the same time, it would be a nice, rem- you know, again, putting this crown on, on his head and you know, perhaps making a big run at an event like this would just sort of consolidate his position as one of the top rising prospects we have right now on the ATP Tour. And I would have loved to see him play this year's event. It's an indoor hardcourt event. Ben Shelton has always been exceptional at indoor hardcourt matches. It's a funky no-ad format always with the next-gen stuff. Obviously, Ben Shelton, having played college tennis, a former NCAA singles champion, it's a format he is familiar with. I would have liked to see Shelton play this event. Again, I can understand, I suppose, why he elected not to, but certainly a little bit disappointed by that decision. Not disappointed in him, disappointed from a fan perspective, because I just would have loved to see him compete against these peers. And again, Shelton didn't have the greatest 11 months consecutively. He had a really good January, really good September uh, September and October, but I don't know. It just felt like there was a little meat left on the bone, and perhaps that meat could have been cleaned off the bone with a nice performance here at these next-gen finals. That said, Shelton's out, and then notably Lorenzo Musetti out of this event as well. Again, Musetti competed in this event the past two seasons. Indoor hard courts have never been his forte, and yet I think with his loss in the Davis Cup, who did Musetti lose to in the semifinals? He lost to Miamir Kasmanovic. I think that was his sixth consecutive loss to end the season. Again, indoor hard courts, never been his thing. Maybe after celebrating that Davis Cup victory, you can understand. Let's celebrate. Let's go head into the offseason, get the training rocking and rolling. But certainly from a match play perspective, from a confidence perspective, and from a peers perspective, I, I would have loved to see. I think even him more so than Shelton would have made a lot of sense to see him competing at this year's next-gen finals. Nevertheless, no Alcaraz, no Runa, no Shelton, no Musetti as such. Average ranking of this field, again, 88.1. I think there's only two, uh, three, excuse me. No, is it two or three? It's either two or three top 100, uh, three in fee, Stricker, and Mickelson. Only three men inside the top 100 of the tennis abstract 
uh, singles rankings, which of course are done by ELO ratings. Uh, so certainly it's a thinner field, but it does feel worth noting again that context at the top. What if Alcaraz was playing? What if Runa was playing? What if Shelton, who made, of course, a slam semifinal this year, Musetti, who we've seen up two sets to love on Djokovic at a major, even if he did ultimately blow that lead to the current world number one? Any of the four of those guys play this year's event? I have this 2023 field over last year's field because, you know, certainly again, Alcaraz, Runa, even Ben Shelton at this point, all Shelton maybe not quite a tier one prospect in that broader sense of a guarantee to win a slam in the next decade, as I like to describe tier one prospects, but he's not a guarantee. He's probably at worst one tier below that, as we just know with his athleticism, his power, the way he competes, he's going to be in the mix for a very long time moving forward. And again, had we had any of those blue chip prospects in this 2023 field, it probably surpasses the 2022 field for me. But as I don't have any of those men, I have it ranked sixth in terms of the context all time of where things stand. And yet that does not put a damper again, final bow here before we get to introducing the eight men. Doesn't put a damper on how I feel about the cur- uh, how I feel. Excuse me about the current young rising prospects we have on the men's tour because Alcaraz, two-time Slam champion, he's beaten Djokovic in a five-set Slam final. How many humans in the world can say that? Not many. You know, Sinner just turned 22, but figuratively, he's still part of this next-gen 2.0 generation. And you know, Runa. Certainly, you feel exceptional about those are three tier one prospects unequivocally. Shelton, Musetti as well, certainly in the mix. And then how about the one, if not tier one, tier two prospect we have competing at this year's event? That's where I want to start in terms of breaking down the field. Let's start with the Frenchman himself, Arthur Fee. Of course, Arthur Fee, 19 years old. He ends his year at a career high number 36 in the rankings. Arthur Fee, again, the young Frenchman, probably the first dynamic French prospect with real slam aspirations we have seen since that quartet of Monfi, Gasquet, Simone, Songa were all rising up the ATP rankings. I really do think Arthur Fee has the opportunity to be that special. Of course, Arthur Fee had a career season here in 2023. It started with making back-to-back challenger title, uh, challenger finals, excuse me, in January, winning a challenger title in Oyeris as well, right away to start the season. After that, he goes on to the clay courts. He wins his first ATP title on the clay, that 250 in Lyon, beating a very competent top 30 clay court player in Francisco Sarundolo in that final. Of course, from there, he makes a semifinal at a 500-level event in Hamburg this season. And makes another final in on uh, in Antwerp, excuse me, indoors Antwerp. I do that every time in Antwerp uh, to end the season, beating a Stefano Tsitsipas six and six on an indoor hard court again, matching Tsitsipas's plus one prowess, throwing in some athleticism of his own as well. Now, you know, you look at Arthur for Arthur Fee at the Slams this season. He went one in three. In main draw play overall, obviously that's low-hanging fruit for him to improve moving forward. But let me say that again. He won just one match at the Slams this season. He ends the year 36 in the world, 39 and 22 overall, 64% win percentage. He's holding 81.8% of the time. That's just outside a top 25 number amongst top 50 players. 
excuse me, amongst top 50 players. But then you look at the return percentage, 23.1. That's better than the average top 50 player. That's a top 25 metric, and it speaks to just the totality of things Arthur Fee can do. Of course, you watch him play. The athleticism jumps off the screen. The fluidity in and out of his corners, the power he can produce off of both wings in and out of the corners, the fact that even though he's not a top 25 server yet, you as you project moving forward, certainly the first serve, he can hit 120s, 130s in terms of a miles per hour perspective pretty easily. He can hit the slice serves. He can hit the kick serves. On the slower surfaces, you give him time to set up his plus one forehand, which, yes, is still a little bit big of a backswing, but Again, the way he explodes through that ball, how consistent he is on the backhand wing where the backswing is much more condensed. He's very comfortable playing slice, playing drop shot, as well as driving through that ball, both cross court and line. He's comfortable moving forward as well. There's just not a lot Arthur Fee can't do already on a tennis court. And again, what's so fascinating to me about Arthur Fee is I actually think he's better right now at plan B, at plan C, at plan D, at improvising when things go astray than he is right now at executing a plus one game plan. I do think long term he's going to be able to dominate with his serve, with his plus one forehand, particularly on high bouncing slower clay courts where again he's just going to have all the time in the world to get into his playbook. But it's the fact that he can do all of those improvisational things so well already and the skill set is there for him to be have a dominant plan A moving forward. Again, you look for Arthur Fee this year, 20 and 18 against top 100 opponents, 7 and 11 against top 50 opponents, 2 and 5 against the top 20 wins for him over Casper Ruud on clay, over Stefano Tsitsipas on an indoor hard court. Those are darn good wins for a 19-year-old to accumulate. And again, you look at this field. Dominic Stricker has never played in an ATP Tour final. Alex Mickelson has played in an ATP Tour final. But talk about a guy who, again, all of his success so recent. He's never won an ATP title. Flavio Caboli never won an ATP title. The point is, no one else in this field has won an ATP title. Arthur Fee can say that he has. And that's a rare thing. You even go back to that loaded 2017 field. I believe there are only two players at the time who had won ATP finals. I think coming into that event, Borna Chorch had won his first title. I want to say either Medvedev or... Uh, or no, no, it might have been Rublev. One of Medvedev or Rublev might have won an ATP title that year as well. But again... You know, he comes into this as a 19-year-old who can play this event the next two seasons as well, having already won an ATP title. I think he's pretty clearly the favorite. And again, this is an opportunity for him to flex his muscles against his peers. Again, a chance for him to show all these 21 and under prospects like, yeah, it's cute that we all made this field. But by the way, this is going to be the only time. I play the next-gen finals because if you're Arthur Fee, I do think there are legitimate aspirations. Again, he won only one slam match this year. You double that number, you you 5X that number. Like The idea of him winning six slam matches, I mean, even eight slam matches, the idea of him just holding serve, holding seed, making third round, dare I say, not even second week, just third round at all the majors this season, or maybe a fourth round at the French Open followed up with like a, a second round exit in one of New York or the Australian Open. I actually think even though, again, bigger backswing on the forehand with how explosive he is, how comfortable he is moving forward, the weapons he possesses, I think he projects to be a pretty good grass court player moving forward as well. 
Arthur Fee's your favorite. Again, if you have not had the opportunity to watch the Frenchman yet this year, make this week the opportunity you take to do so because we're going to get a lot of Arthur Fee, in my opinion, over the course of the next 15 years on the ATP Tour. Again, 19 years old, 36 in the world, highest ranked player in this event, certainly uh, the favorite as we head into things. Who's my second favorite after that? Probably the guy who made the semifinals of this event last season, a guy who, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know I have long projected to make a top 50, make a top 25, maybe even a top 15 push at some point in his career. That, of course, is the 21-year-old Dominic Stricker, who this season captures two challenger titles, one on hard court, one on clay courts, of course, makes the second round of a major for the first time in his career as well, coming through qualifying at the U.S. Open, then getting wins over Alexi Popperin, Stefano Tsitsipas, and Benjamin Bonzi before getting knocked out by Taylor Fritz in round number four. Now, Currently, Stricker, 94 in the world, reached his career high of 88 back in October. It was a career season for the Swiss 21-year-old who, again, Two seconds. No, nah, not two. We'll say five points. It takes five points of watching Dominic Stricker uh, play to realize what a special prospect that he is. Again, when I watch Dominic Stricker, striking a tennis ball is never going to be his problem. I just, there are people who, if you're in this game long enough, whether it's watching it in person, via television, whether you grew up playing it the way I did, and I wasn't elite, but I was good enough to be surrounded by elite prospects, players who went on to play high-level Division I college tennis. You just kind of learn to know it when you see it. And Stricker's just one of those guys who just has a God-given ability to strike the tennis ball beautifully. The lefty feel, touch, finesse, those all mean the same thing, but the power, the creativity, slice, topspin, flattening things out, Nothing's an issue for Dominic Stricker when it comes to striking a tennis ball. Now, consistency has been an issue for Stricker at various points of his career. 36-22 and 22 overall on the season. But, you know, again, there was a stretch where after the U.S. Open, I think he lost five consecutive matches. And, you know, there was a stretch earlier this year where he lost three consecutive matches. Another stretch earlier this season where he lost three out of five matches conse- uh, in a little bit of a run. Stricker's just not where he needs to be physically, uh, to be the top 50, top 25 player that he certainly has the skill set or uh, the skill set he displays. Uh, he just doesn't have that consistency yet. But guess what? When you're talking about a 21-year-old lacking that consistency, I think that's the best case scenario because consistency comes with maturity. And I think we all know maturity comes with age. Maybe not as quick for some as others. You could ask my dad and if you said, I was going to say, if you all said, dad, is Alex mature? But if you said Michael, is Alex mature? I can tell you exactly his response. You go, huh. And then he wouldn't respond. He'd belly laugh for a little, and then he'd just ignore your question because he'd want to be kind to me. But I think for Stricker, again, it's about finding the daily routines. It's about finding, you know, I think this could be a massive offseason for him, gaining that confidence from the U.S. Open, knowing that his peak level is as exceptional as it seems to be that his peak level, again, ability to strike the tennis ball can be as good as anyone out there. You know, his plus one game can just, his power, how easy that service motion is. He's blessed with one of those shoulders. I got the chance to see him in person in 2022 when he won the Cleveland Challenger title. And you're just like, yeah, that guy strikes the ball, stricks the ball, Dominic stricks the ball. Sorry, couldn't help myself. 
just better than the rest of or than than most of us mortals. And you know, again, last year he was a semifinalist at this event that he knows how to maneuver not only you know, the emotions of this round-robin event, but also knows how to maneuver the no-ad form, and I think that is a significant advantage for Dominic Stricker entering this year. And again, the 21-year-old, 94 in the world. I expect him to make a massive run at this event. I think he and Arthur Fee, pretty clearly the two favorites heading into these next-gen finals. But again, you look at the rest of the field, and we're going to rapid-fire through it more quickly here to end today's show. Next up, 19-year-old Alex Mickelson, I call him Bambi because you watch him sometimes and you're like, oh yeah, this is a young elephant learning to grow into his body. Just He is so thoroughly blessed with one of those shoulders. I actually think comparisons between Mickelson and Stricker are pretty fair. Just again, touch, finesse, power, blessed with one of those shoulders. I do think the most natural comparison to make for Alex Mickelson when you watch him play is a younger Jack Sock with, dare I say, a more competent backhand, although probably a little bit less explosive from an athleticism perspective. But look, this was really the first full season for the 19-year-old at the professional level. The 19-year-old who, by the way, shares a birthday with my mother. So Alex Mickelson, you and your August 25th birthday skyrocketing up the Alex Gruskin power rankings. It's a birthday now I will always remember. Mickelson went 61-24. and 24. Let me say that again. 61-24 and 24 here in this 2023 season. That is is ridiculous. And it's a season that started out with him playing at the 15K level, finals of Malibu, wins a 15K in Edmond, makes a challenger final in Rome, Georgia, right away at the start of the uh, the year. What does he do after that? Well, this summer, he wins his first challenger title in Chicago. From there, he makes his first ATP Tour final in Newport on two separate occasions this season. Alex Mickelson won nine matches in a row. Both of them came at the challenger level or higher, those nine-match win streaks. When you do that as a player under the age of 21, you have all of our attentions. And obviously for Alex Mickelson, again, can strike the cover off of a tennis ball. Now, the question is, how does his speed, how does his fitness hold up when pressed against, dare I say, older or fellow, uh, older players or elite athletes, players who are stronger than him, players who have the strength to also absorb or redirect that first strike tennis and can continue to ask questions of Mickelson. Now, the big news for Mickelson coming off of a Champagne Challenger final, Knoxville challenger title run over the past couple of weeks he's in the top 100 for the first time 97 in the world going to get into the Australian Open on the merits of his own rankings won't need that USTA wild card what a year it's been for Mickelson now you look for Mickelson in his career against top 100 opponents he was five and five uh he's five and five excuse me overall wins over Ofner Ramos Vinolas and Pablo Ver, uh, Juan Pablo Varillas on hard courts are three of them. I think, you know, again, you see those three results and you're kind of asking yourself, all right, I probably need to see a little bit more. He's also beaten Mackie McDonald on grass courts. That's actually a really good win. Uh, to beat Alex Vukic on grass courts, Vuki with his serve, his forehand-centric game style, I don't think grass courts will ever be the best surface for the former Illini All-American. But look, there's a reason Alex Mickelson elected not to go play college tennis and elected to turn pro instead. And when you're a top 100 player in the world, unless your name's Diana Schneider, that's a pretty obvious choice, I would say, for a young prospect to make. So again, the ball striking of Mickelson, that's going to be the thing that jumps off the screen more than anything. He's your dark horse candidate, a guy who, again, on an indoor hardcourt, why couldn't he go out and win this damn thing this week? He's a guy to watch. 
Again, the rest of the five are, will go through even faster here. Luca Van Asche, 70 in the world. He's actually one of the high, second highest ranked player behind his French compatriot, Arthur Fee, entering this event. It was an outstanding year for the 19-year-old, 19 and 6 at the challenger level with two challenger titles. He went 10 and 17 at the ATP level, but you know, again, was able to get into the main draws of a couple of major events, was able to get that experience against top 100, top 50 players this year. You look for Van Asha, 37 and 28, or, uh, excuse me, 32 and 28 overall on the season. You look at how he fared against top 100 opponents, Van Asha, 10 and 18 overall on the year. 2-11, though, against top 50 opponents. So against opponents ranked 51 through 100, he was 8-7 and seven overall in the year. Pretty much, again, if that stat doesn't tell you that he's pretty accurately ranked at 70 in the world, I don't know what will. Now, he is a fascinating prospect because, again, his technique's a little funky. Really like the way he absorbs redirects on the backhand side, but it's an extreme Western grip on his forehand. He definitely hits a heavy kick-serve base, which is very helpful for him on clay courts, but... How does that translate to faster surfaces? How will, uh, you know, again, he's quick in and out of his corners. He's a heck of an athlete, but I want to see him play against his peers. I want to see him have some success this week. I want to see him make a semifinal because certainly by ranking, he should do so. I'm not sold on Van Asha's upside. Could he be a top 50 player someday? Certainly. Do I think he has the weapons necessary to become a top 30 player to become a top 15 player. I'm a little bit less sold on that. It's going to be a fascinating week uh, for Von Asha, one to watch this week, and one we're going to talk about on Wednesday when, uh, tomorrow, excuse me, when I'm joined by our dear friend Crack Rackets contributor Damian Kust, who of course always has his thumb on the pulse of all the young prospects rising on the ATP Tour. So that's another guy, you know, again, fifth on my list, Flavio Caboli. I'm going to be honest, I have to watch more Flavio Caboli film. I would be disingenuous if I offered you anything on his game. Yes, he's ranked 100 in the world. The 21-year-old also this season making two challenger t- uh, finals, winning a challenger title. Uh, he also... But he went 41 and 26 overall on the year. How many challenger quarterfinals does that mean he made? He made 14, 14 challenger quarterfinals this year. Low key, that's a ridiculous number. 14 challenger quarterfinals, 11 of them on clay courts. I got to watch a little bit more Kaboli before I offer you my full assessment on the current world number 100. But hey, 21 years old, your top 100 player. He reached that top 100 for the first time this season. By the way, you make 14 challenger quarterfinals. It doesn't matter what your record is at the tour level and for what it's worth. Kaboli this year, four and five overall at the tour level. He did make a quarterfinal in Munich on the clay. But, you know, again, still a lot to learn about Flavio Kaboli. Um, I will offer you all an update on him after I watch a little bit more film, but he's your fifth guy in the field. Sixth guy, Hamad Medjedovic, the 20-year-old from Serbia, currently world number 111. He's a big boy. That's the first thing that comes out to me. Again, some serious weapons, some serious strength, that ability to absorb, redirect pace, and beat you to the spot down the line. Was fascinating watching him reach the semifinals in Astana a couple of weeks ago at the, or excuse me, a couple of months ago, uh, a tour-level semifinal for him where he beats a Yuri Lechechka, beats a Laszlo Gera, also beating an Alexander Shevchenko as well. Now, does he have the fluidity in and out of his corners to be able to get into his playbook, to be able to utilize his size, utilize his weapons, overwhelm you with the weight of his shot, you know, again, I need to see him further test against elite competition because 
you know, again, you look for him 43 and 23 overall on the season. He made what six different uh, quarterfinals this year. Went six and zero in quarterfinals. By the way, he also made two different tour-level semifinals this season in Stad on the clay, in Astana on the hard courts as well, losing a three-set thriller to Seppi Corda, one of my low-key favorite matches of the year in Astana earlier this season. But again, that's a slower hard court. Certainly going to be slower, I imagine, than the courts we see uh, at this week's next-gen ATP final. So Medvedevich, again, a guy with size, a guy with serious weapons, you know, what is one thing I've learned over these past few seasons is if movement is my biggest question about your game moving forward, unless it's really, really debilitating. I mean, look at a guy like Taylor Fritz. Taylor Fritz is not a God-given athlete from a fluidity and speed perspective, and yet his ability to strike a tennis ball is undeniable, and he's built himself into one of the 10 best players in the world. So I actually like Medvedevich's upside quite a bit. I, I, you know, again, top 25. I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet, but fascinating to see how he competes against his peers as well. He's one to keep an eye on. Of course, last two, 20-year-old Luca Nardi, another Italian in the mix here at this year's event. The 20-year-old uh, making three challenger finals this year, reaching two challenger title, uh, winning two challenger titles overall. He goes 39 and 34 on his season, makes 10 different challenger-level quarterfinals throughout the course of this year. Now, you look at his tour-level success, Nardi 1-5 at the tour level this season. You look for him against top 100 players, Luca Nardi against the top 100, 5-9 overall on the season. Again, it would be disingenuous for me to offer you my thoughts on Luca Nardi. He, uh, there's just Nardi, Caboli, I can go through the list of all the young Italian prospects. There are many of them. You know, Arnaldi, uh, Musetti, Sinner, obviously the two headliners. I owe you, again, I owe you all a bigger breakdown on all things Italian tennis. That's why I'm bringing Damien Kust on this show tomorrow to help me negotiate that sort of tutorial. But again, all the credit in the world to Luca Nardi. Heck of a season. You make, uh, what, how many quarterfinals did I say? He made this year six different, uh, excuse me, 10 different quarterfinals overall on the season. That's how you get to number 115 in the world. And again, for the 20-year-old to end the season at his career high ranking of number 115 speaks to the fact he has gotten better and better at every stage of his career. Nardi's one to watch. And then last, but certainly not least, how about former Florida Gator, now world number 187, 20-year-old Abdullah Shelby. Happy belated birthday to Abdullah, who turned 20 years old about 11 days ago. Lutzi's got serious weapons. He's got that springiness uh, to him. Again, fluid in and out of his corners, can slap a ball down the line at will. You look for him this season, reached three different finals, won his first challenger title to end the season in Charleston on the hard courts as well. You look uh, for Abdullah. Again, he didn't play for Florida in his freshman season, and that speaks to how loaded that team was, a team that had Shelton at number one, 2021 NCAA singles champion Sam Riffis at number two. Two, you had Duarte Valle, former All-American Andy Andrade, Josh Goodger. You can go on and on and on about how talented that Florida team it was and the fact that they didn't win the NCAA title is a 30-for-30 30 30 or maybe like a 6-for-6 six six, uh, in itself. But 
Look, Shelby overall in the season, 42 and 30 across challenger level success, across uh, futures level success as well. He did get a couple of tour level victories for the first time this season. Now, how does he fare against the top 100? That's a fascinating question. Abdullah Shelby, 3-5 and five against the top 100 for his career. Certainly going to get a look at a couple of top 100 prospects, no matter who he plays or no matter what group he falls in at the next-gen finals this season. But again, a guy who, yes, has had some challenger success, still hasn't been exposed to the best of the best in tour-level competition. One to certainly circle is, again, he's the wild card granted into the event. And, you know, again, we'll be. Uh, you imagine there will be some some cheers for Abdullah Shelby throughout the course of this week. So he's one to watch. And again, we'll be back tomorrow to break down this field with further depth. Our dear friend Damian Koos going to join me to help fill in the gaps for anything I may have missed in breaking down each of these prospects. Of course, we'll be back each and every day this week offering you updates on this next-gen ATP Finals. As again, it's the best snapshot we have each and every season into what the top 21 and under prospects look like at any given moment on the ATP Tour. So more next-gen ATP Finals conversations for all of you to come in the near future. In the meantime, one last shout-out. How about the next-gen ATP Combine? We saw emerging clips of on social media here on or All right, we're 48 minutes in. Spoiler alert, I'm traveling back home with my father from Florida tomorrow to Michigan. After that, I'll drive home from Michigan to Indianapolis. So I'm recording this Monday night, cheating a little bit for all of you listeners. I said today because here on Monday, we saw these fantastic clips released on social media. And if you haven't checked it out, the first combine I have ever seen performed at these next-gen ATP finals. And what do I mean by combine? Well, for those of you who are also football fans, basketball fans, whatever it may be, you know at the combine, they do various speed drills, various jumping drills to measure these players' athleticism. They do the 40-yard dash. They do the three-cone drill. They do your vertical jump. They do your broad jump. All these different things to get quantifiable measurements of your athleticism compared to your peers. Well, guess what? For the first time ever, they did that at a tennis event. They did that at this next-gen field. They did your three-cone drill, meaning service line to far single sideline to far single sideline and back as well. They did broad jump. They did high jump as well. They did just all the things you'd want to see. Uh, measured from an athleticism standpoint of all these players. Now, I've yet to see any formal results released, but it's perfect social media content. It's everything I think tennis fans who also double as other sport fans want to see as well. It's just a delightful. And you can see these guys embrace it, right? To see, put their athleticism to the test, to test themselves against their peers as well. Shout out to the Next Gen crew for putting that together. Shout out to them as well for releasing those clips on social media. One of my favorite things I probably saw on all of Monday with that said, though, that'll do it for your preview of the 2023 Next Gen ATP Finals. Again, your sixth edition of this 21 and under championships. Of course, we will be back tomorrow with further updates on all the action as it emerges. Hopefully, we'll have our dear friend Damian Coos joining us as well. For the meantime, a shout out to our dear friend, Super Producer Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is 
CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.